to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, January 6, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. Today's headline is Company Could Face Fines Plus Cleanup Costs from Fire by Aaron Jordan. Owners of a Marengo workshop that exploded last month, injuring half its workforce and leaving an environmental mess, may now face thousands of dollars in fines on top of cleanup costs. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources referred C-60 to the Attorney General's Office for legal action this week after the company said it could not meet deadlines for cleaning up the site. The DNR ordered C-60 to complete an environmental site assessment plan by December 31st, but that date passed without a filing. Ecosource LLC, a Des Moines area environmental consulting firm, submitted a plan on C-60's behalf January 3rd, DNR spokeswoman Tammy Krausman said. The department is reviewing the information provided. However, the dates proposed for cleanup do not comply with the emergency order, Krausman said in an email. Therefore, the department has referred this matter to the Attorney General's Office for further legal action. The Gazette asked the DNR for a copy of the plan, but the agency did not immediately respond. The DNR has the authority to pursue administrative penalties of up to $10,000, but the Attorney General can seek higher penalties. Iowa law allows for fines of $5,000 a day for water quality violations, $5,000 a day for solid waste violations, and $10,000 a day for air quality violations. Other factors to consider in making an Attorney General referral recommendation include, but are not limited to, the gravity of the violations, the need for temporary or permanent injunctive relief, presence of a multimedia violation, violation of an earlier judicial consent order or judgment, and possible bankruptcy, the DNR reported in an enforcement management document online. The Attorney General does have independent authority to commence civil or criminal proceedings pursuant to Section 455B.112 of the Iowa Code. C60 describes itself as a recycler of used asphalt shingles, with founder Howard Brand III attempting to use a proprietary solvent to dissolve the shingles into component parts of oil, sand, and fiberglass. The Marengo plant, which opened in 2020 and had about 30 employees, still was in a pilot phase, December 8th, when liquid liquid solvent in a tank exploded and started on fire. Between 10 to 15 people were treated for injuries at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, and neighbors living near the facility were briefly evacuated. Since the explosion, DNR staff have noted multiple large ankle-deep pools of oily substance and missing walls and ceiling portions suggesting the building isn't stable, the December 15th order stated. The agency also is concerned about large quantities of chemicals and piles of loose shingles. Water samples taken from nearby waterways show evidence of pollution from the site, the agency reported. Ecosource LLC has been working with C60 since the fire to try to determine the best way to clean up the site, Ecosource owner and environmental director Darren Fife told the Gazette on Thursday. 
We were involved in the initial response, and we have been selected to start taking some of the next steps here, he said. We have expertise in dealing with contaminants, contaminated cleanup, the assessment portion, and laying out what steps are going to be necessary to move forward. Fife said he was aware the DNR referred C60 to the AG. The plan the company put together for C60 doesn't meet the state's deadline of cleaning up the site by later this month. Fife said temperatures at or below freezing make it more challenging to get reliable soil and water samples. Before starting work, Ecosource is waiting on the DNR's feedback on the plan and for confirmation C60 or its insurance provider can pay for it, Fife said. C60 released a statement Thursday saying, Cleanup is ongoing. C60 has never indicated that it cannot meet a 45-day deadline and has made no statement in any public or private discussion, spokesman Mark Corallo wrote in an email to the Gazette. While C60 awaits IDNR approval of the site assessment plan, field analytics continue to be gathered to better understand the extent of potential contamination. From the Iowa Today page, Lynn Auditor Miller Will Not Seek Re-Election by Gage Miskman, Dateline Cedar Rapids. When voters hit the polls in November 2024 to vote for Lynn County Auditor, Joel Miller's name will not be on the ballot. Miller told the Gazette on Thursday he will not be seeking re-election to the county's auditor position. I am definitely not running for a re-election for county auditor next year, Miller said. If someone is interested in running, I'm trying to give them the time to think about it. For some people, they might need a year to think about county office. Miller, a Democrat, has served as Lynn County Auditor since 2007. In November, he lost to Republican Paul Pate in his bid to become Iowa's Secretary of State. It's time for someone else here, he said. Time for the next generations to step up to run for these elected offices. It's a personal sacrifice, but they need to take over from us old people that have been in charge. It's time for me to move out of this and get some fresh thinking and new ideas in here. Though he's still thinking about what's next, the 67-year-old won't rule out another run for elective office in the future. There's always that possibility, Miller said. If I choose to run for another office, I would not finish my term here. That's what I told my staff. I don't like being on the ballot and running the election. I haven't liked doing that. That's never been a pleasurable thing. I like to go out on election day and visit polling places, and I don't do that when I'm on the ballot myself. Miller did not say which office or offices he may seek. I live in Robbins, so I'm not resigning my current job to run for city office, said Miller, a former Robbins mayor. But there are legislative offices, county offices in 2024, and other offices you could run for. But is that what I want to do? I just know I'm not running for county auditor. That's the one definitive thing that is there. Miller, whose background is in telecommunications with a a career that included positions with AT&T, Teleconnect, and IT at Four Oaks, also served in the U.S. Army and and began his career as a Buchanan County Deputy Sheriff at 18. Miller added that last year's election, which included a mistake from his office that left the District 1 supervisor race off ballots in Putnam Township, 
was not a factor in his decision to not seek re-election. I didn't like what happened. I'm embarrassed by it and frustrated by it. It's unfortunate. But, in the end, I am accountable and I own it. If I was younger, I'd run again, he said. I just think running and administering elections is becoming a young person's sport and not for people my age. Miller said he had entertained the possibility of not running again in 2020 when he had a son, daughter-in-law, and grandchild in Milwaukee, but after they moved to Cedar Rapids area, he changed his mind. Now I already get to see my grandkids all the time, Miller said. Miller said the election law changes that came from the state legislature in 2021 are a main motivation to leave the office. Elections used to be a lot more fun than they are, he said. More restrictions were placed on voting, and no matter how much people like to tout record turnout, we are misrepresenting the percentage of the overall population with people who aren't even registered to vote. Those laws basically changed everything, in my opinion. Miller said he was not, has not found a successor in his own office, and no one else has expressed interest in running to become county auditor. The county has around 17 full-time employees and an annual budget of about $2 million. I've reached out to fellow auditors to see if they were interested or knew somebody, but I didn't get any names to follow up on, Miller said. Unfortunately, no deputy here is interested in running for the spot. I have polled them. They want to keep doing what they're doing, but that was the case when I got contacted by my predecessor for this job. Nobody in the office at the time wanted to be county auditor. Miller said before he leaves office, he would like to make deputy auditors management positions rather than political appointed positions. I'm trying to leave the office in good shape to carry on, regardless of who gets elected, he said. I've got a good crew here. But Miller has a lot to think about from now until 2024, when his term will end. He said he may also do something else. I was really interested in ride-sharing technology a couple of years ago, and, unbeknownst to almost everyone, I am an Uber driver for a bit because I wanted to see how it worked, Miller said. But I want to do fun things like that, volunteer for organizations I feel strongly about. I just think God's been good to me. I'm in good health. I want to continue to do things. The next story is University of Iowa doctor and Cubs physician calls Hamlin response in game fantastic by Vanessa Miller. Treating a patient in cardiac arrest is stressful for any emergency room doctor charged with deploying years of training alongside peers doing the same in a setting stocked with equipment needed to save the person's life. Now consider doing that in a stadium of 65,000 plus before a live audience of more than 23 million, like doctors did this week in Cincinnati when Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin collapsed in cardiac arrest during Monday night football. There's a whole different level of stress on an already stressful situation, University of Iowa Clinical Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine Christopher Hogreef told the Gazette, pulling from personal experience as a current assistant physician for the Chicago Cubs. Personally, I can empathize with them, said Chicago-based Hogreef, 
who over the course of his career also served as visiting team physician for the Chicago Bears and an emergency physician at Chicago Blackhawk Games. They did a fantastic job to get him stabilized, get his heart restarted, get him to a major academic center. Hamlin, 24, remained in critical condition Thursday, but, according to a team statement, was showing signs of remarkable improvement after collapsing during Monday's game following what appeared to be a routine hit. Having spent more than a decade in emergency and sports medicine, Hogreef, who also holds an adjunct associate professorship at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, spoke with the Gazette about his impression of the Hamlin episode, the response, and what it could teach about how to handle such emergencies. I think public awareness is fantastic, he said, and one of the things that will be the good that comes out of this, if there is good, is the awareness of this and the importance of automated external defibrillators. Question, what were your initial thoughts when you saw Hamlin collapse? Answer, Hogreef said his mind went to either acute head injury or cardiac event, like comiotocordis, when a sudden trauma to the chest comes at an exact moment to disrupt the heart's electrical activity and cause cardiac arrest. It hits the chest when the heart is going through its electrical process, he said, of a potential trauma like a hockey check, baseball hit, or football tackle. And when it does that, it just stuns the heart and stops it. Question. Some have wondered whether Hamlin had underlying heart or health conditions. Could something like that have played a role? Answer. I help take care of a professional sports team, and the rigor that these folks are put through by the time they get to and through college followed by the combine in the NFL, and they do their physicals. They're screened pretty intensively for structural heart issues, he said. So that wasn't the first thing that went through my mind. Question. What is the prognosis of someone who experiences comotio cordis? Answer. It's something like comotio cordis, and AED is critical because that's what starts the electrical activity of your heart and jumpstarts it back to working, he said. Adding CPR is helpful, too, in keeping blood circulating. Those things dictate how much damage occurs in the brain and the heart. Hogreef said, Because without the oxygen flowing through your body, being circulated through the blood, your tissues in the brain and heart are in partic- and the heart in particular don't get that oxygen. And the longer they go without it, the more difficult it is to recover. Question. What do you think of the Hamlin response Monday night? They responded amazingly quickly, and I've been on the sidelines for NFL games, he said. What sort of responders? Uh, Question. Were on hand when Hamlin went down. Answer. The NFL has interesting rules, Hogreef said. It assigns a physician from the home team's community to every visiting team, he said, and each team typically travels with their own primary care physician and orthopedic surgeon, along with sports medicine and airway specialists for breathing issues and other needs. So there are countless physicians at the ready to help in case of anything, whether minor injury 
or catastrophe, he said, and from what I could see, they responded phenomenally. Question, what can the public do to be prepared if faced with a cardiac emergency? Answer, first, Hogreef said, know your surroundings. Automated defibrillators now are in malls, swimming pools, gyms, public parks, and many office buildings. Given the risk, a baseball could strike a player in the chest. A UI physician years ago spearheaded an initiative to get them at the baseball diamonds, especially in rural Iowa, where hospitals aren't minutes away. If others are around, ask for help calling paramedics and finding an AED, Hogreef said. Because the devices are com- give commands, users don't need medical experience or knowledge to deploy them. Hogreef said responders also should start CPR to get blood flowing. Just start pushing on the chest. 100 pumps per minute, he said. That whole mantra about the staying alive song and following along with the rhythm of the beat, that's the pace you should do it at. The next story is Body Identified as Missing Employee by Emily Anderson. Human remains that were found in the Cedar River last week have been identified as Eric Spaugh, a Cedar Rapids employee who went missing last summer, according to a news release from the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Spaugh, 54, was reported missing May 7th. He'd been working the night before at the Northwest Water Treatment Plant at 7807 Ellis Road Northwest and was reported missing by his co-workers, who noticed he never returned to the J Avenue Water Treatment Plant where his personal car was parked. Spa's city-owned pickup truck was found submerged in the Cedar River just upriver from the Edgewood Road Bridge with no one inside. His mother, Karen Spa, told the Gazette at the time that he had diabetes and he'd been having trouble regulating his insulin intake, so she believed he may have passed out from low blood sugar and driven into the river. Cedar Rapids search crews spent several days on the river looking for Spa and periodically returned throughout the summer to continue searching. On December 30th, hunters spotted Spa's remains in the Cedar River just below the water treatment facility near Bertram Road in Cedar Rapids. A Cedar Rapids water rescue team located and recovered the remains, which were sent to the Iowa office of the state medical examiner. The medical examiner's office identified the remains as Spa's Thursday morning. Foul play is not suspected in his death, according to the news release from the police department. Cedar Rapids man faces five charges following stabbing. A Cedar Rapids man was arrested Thursday, accused of stabbing another man in the back. Michael Chevalier, 33, is charged with attempt to commit murder, willful injury resulting in serious injury, going armed with intent, assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, and use of a dangerous weapon in the commission of a crime. Cedar Rapids police responded to the report of a stabbing in the area of B Avenue and 29th Street Northeast at 12.14 a.m. Thursday, according to a news release from the department. Officers arrived at the scene to find a 37-year-old man with a stab wound in his back. He was transported to a hospital for treatment of a non-life-threatening injury, according to the release. Chevalier was arrested following an investigation. 
He was transported to the Lynn County Correctional Center in Cedar Rapids. Iwan, believed to be oldest in U.S., dies at 115, Dateline, Lake City, Iowa. An Iowa woman, who is believed to be the oldest living person in the U.S., has died at the age of 115. Bessie Lorena Hendricks of Lake City died Tuesday at the Shady Oaks Care Center, according to Lamp and Powers Funeral Home in Lake City. Hendricks celebrated her 115th birthday at the home on November 7th and was listed last year by the Los Angeles-based Gerontology Research Group as the country's oldest living person until her death. Born in 1907 in west-central Iowa's Calhoun County, Hendricks was alive to witness news of the sinking of the Titanic, World War I and II, the Great Depression, and the Spanish flu and COVID-19 pandemics. She was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse there and the mother of five children, according to the Des Moines Register. A funeral service will be held Saturday at Lamp and Powers Funeral Home. The Gerontology Research Group reports that Hendrix's death leaves 114-year-old Edie Ceccarelli of California as the country's oldest living person. Turning to the Insight page, we have a guest column by Liz Mathis titled, Thank You, Lynn County. The upcoming legislative session will start with the strike of the gavel on January 9th, and for the first time in 10 years, I will watch floor speeches and debates online as a constituent. With redistricting, I chose to run for U.S. Congress instead of re-election to the state Senate. I gave my retirement speech last April, along with four other Senate Democrat colleagues. It has been an absolute honor to represent so many Lynn County residents. Over the years, I have received thousands of emails from constituents asking for help, seeking unemployment support, needing health care, or asking me to solve a family or community issue. I have attended events, gone to countless meetings, and joined rallies. With each contact, I learned how to be a better legislator. In this upcoming session, it's imperative that legislators listen to their constituents and do what's right for Iowa children and the most vulnerable among us. A legislator's success can be measured by how many of their bills are passed at the state capitol. But many times, it is the leadership work legislators do at home that is most impacting. It has been gratifying to see a child receive needed surgery a derecho victim get help, or a disabled adult obtain services because I intervened as their representative and fought for their human and civil rights. Unfortunately, we have become politically divisive in so many ways, and that has led to disagreement and no effort to compromise. In the end, it is the constituent who loses. Don't be afraid to contact your state elected officials when you have a problem or concern. You can view a list of your representatives, follow legislation, and watch live debate at legis.iowa.gov. Thank you, Lynn County, for allowing me to speak for you and the opportunity to serve you. And that was by State Senator Liz Mathis, and she lives in Hiawatha. We have another guest column by Jean McMenamin, who is president of the League of Women Voters of Lynn County. 
The title is League Works to Educate Local Voters. In this age of contentious partisan positioning and campaign ads that malign the opposition more than described positions of candidates, where do you find balanced, factual information about candidates and elected officials? Once elected, these candidates who serve on local school boards, our county board of supervisors, and area legislators make policy decisions which influence our schools, county, and state. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan organization which works to educate voters and protect the voting rights of all citizens. In spite of its name, membership is open to anyone 16 and older, men as well as women. The Lynn County League Nonpartisan Candidate Forums for local, mayoral, and school board positions in Cedar Rapids and Hiawatha in March, primary forums for state legislative candidates in early June, and general election forums for all state, House, and Senate districts in Lynn County in October. There are legislative forums open to the public to ask questions of their local legislators. The first 2023 Lynn County Legislative Forum is scheduled from 10 to 11.45 a.m. January 21st at the Kirkwood Lynn Regional Center in Hiawatha. All area candidates for local, county, and state positions, and now elected legislators, are invited to to participate in league forums. Sometimes candidates or legislators have scheduling conflicts. But much more common is a lack of response from area candidates and then elected legislators. How does the general public learn their policy positions when candidates and then elected officials are not willing to answer questions from the community at our nonpartisan forums? Nonpartisan public forums are not the only casualty of this shutout. Some candidates have not met with local editorial boards to share their views. Few candidates answer surveys such as the Vote411.org site managed by the National League of Women Voters inviting candidates to indicate where they stand on issues prior to elections. Some legislators take the position that the League of Women Voters is not truly nonpartisan based on the questions asked at forums. Community attendees write the questions they want to ask and the LWV questions Sorter organizes the questions by topic and hands them off to the forum moderator. The League's decision of what legislation to support or oppose is based on what we believe will benefit the majority of Iowans, not a specific political party. A wide representation of the community at our forums benefits all constituents, and we encourage voters, regardless of political party affiliation, to attend. Citizens deserve to have opportunities to ask questions and hear in person from their elected officials without traveling to Des Moines. We hope all area legislators will make it a priority to participate in the upcoming forums. We hope constituents will hold their elected officials accountable to participate. Mark your calendar to attend the 2023 legislative forums on the third Saturday in January February and March in person or view the live stream on the League of Women Voters Lynn County Facebook site. And that was the guest column by Jean McMenamin, who is president of the League of Women Voters of Lynn County. 
turning to the Business 380 page. The article is titled, After Five Months, Strike Continues at Ingredient, by Marissa Payne. Union workers still are in negotiations with Ingredient officials to end their strike against the company's Cedar Rapids facility, according to the union president. After a round of negotiations December 4th with officials from the multinational ingredients maker, we thought we had a deal to end the strike, which began August 1st, according to Mike Moore, the principal and president of Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union Local 100G. Moore on Thursday told the Gazette the main points of contention, narrowed down from the original 26, are proposed schedule change for the maintenance department, pay scale for paid time off, requirements for workers to learn an additional job, an amnesty clause to protect striking workers from from discipline. We're real close, Moore said. We just have these couple open items and this amnesty clause that are holding us from walking back in the place. It's good negotiations, and we thought we were going to have a deal, but they're holding tight on these issues. No additional formal negotiations have been scheduled, he said, but ingredient officials have been invited to negotiate at any time. My members are holding tight, Moore said. Becca Harry, ingredient corporate communications director, wrote in an email that the company has remained in close communication with union leadership with the assistance of a negotiator and were hopeful they present the latest proposal to their members. She pointed to a December news release from Ingredient, which said the company's latest offer incorporated feedback from the union and included numerous adjustments to our previous proposals and achieved many mutually beneficial items, including increased pay, growth opportunities, and an enhanced benefits package. In response to the work stoppage, we enacted our business continuity plan and are continuing to operate the facility to fulfill our customers' orders and mitigate the impact on our operations, the statement continued. Our top priority is the safety and security of our employees operating the the facility, the the community members of Cedar Rapids, and our suppliers making deliveries to our facility. As we have formally communicated to the union, Ingredient stands ready to further our discussions with the objective of reaching an agreement that is fair and allows for the opportunity to sustainably build on the facility's proud 128-year history. You are listening to a reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, January 6, 2023 on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Joan Diane Grissel Joan Diane Grissel, 69, of Kearney, Missouri, formerly of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Monday, January 2, 2023. Visitation will be from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, 4200 First Avenue Northeast, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52402. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed in Joan's honor to the American Cancer Society. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory to Joan's family at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. John P. Rarick, North Liberty. 
John P. Rarick, passed away December 28, 2022. He was born July 8, 1939 in Iowa City to Alan A. Rarick and Ruth E. Rarick. John graduated from Tiffin High School in 1957 and farmed in Johnson County since he was 16. Memorial services are pending at this time through Gay and Sia Funeral and Cremation Service. To share a thought, memory, or condolence, visit the Funeral Home website at gayandsia.com. Service details will be announced. Dean Allen Hanover Dean Allen Hanover, 68, of Cedar Rapids, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital, following complications with cancer. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Tian Funeral Home and Cremation Services are assisting the family. Memorials may be directed to the family. family. Online condolences can be left at tianfuneralhome.com. Jamie Nicole Randall Jamie Nicole Randall, 45, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at her home. The family will hold a celebration of life beginning at 1 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at the Fairfax Legion Hall, 216 Main Street, Fairfax, Iowa. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Memorials may be directed to Kelly Randall, care of Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, 520 Wilson Avenue Southwest, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52404. Please share a memory of Jamie at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Dr. Walter Wally Scott Schaefer Dr. Walter Wally Scott Schaefer passed away at his home on December 17, 2022, after being diagnosed terminally ill with stage 4 throat and neck cancer in April 2022, a common cause of death in his family. He had been the last living member of his family for over a decade at the time of his passing. He considered his patients, colleagues, and friends his family. Services are not being planned per his final wishes. Craig Preston Hargrave Craig Preston Hargrave, 64, affectionately known as Skeeter, gained his wings of glory on December 30, 2022. A celebration of Craig's life will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, January 21, 2023, at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City, where a service will be held at 2.30 p.m. The service may be viewed on Zoom. The Zoom link may be found on the tribute wall on Craig's obituary page at lensingfuneral.com. Dorothy Jean Seberger. Dorothy Jean Seberger, 88, of Iowa City, passed away Monday, January 2, 2023, at Oak Knoll Retirement Residence, surrounded by her daughters. A graveside service will be held at Oakland Cemetery, Iowa City, at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Stanley Museum of Art. Marilyn L. Ledvina, Elberon, Iowa. Marilyn A. Ledvina, 90, of Elberon, Iowa, passed away January 4, 2023, at the home of her granddaughter Amy, surrounded by her family. Service is 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 2nd at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Chelsea with Father Michael McAndrew and Deacon Joe Bahonik officiating. Burial will take place at National Cemetery in Vining. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, January 9th at Rabak Newhouse Funeral Service, Belle Plaine. Memorials may be directed to the family. 
Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhousefuneralservice.com. Shirley Rose Getzinger. Shirley Rose Getzinger, 85, a longtime resident of Marion, Iowa, passed away on Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at Anamosa Care Center in Anamosa. A vigil service will be held at 1.30 p.m. Sunday, January 8th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where a visitation will follow until 4 p.m. Deacon Jeff Volker will officiate. Inurnment will take place at a later date at Latner Catholic Cemetery in Latnerville, Iowa. Donnie P. Murphy Donnie P. Murphy, 64, of Marion, passed away on Wednesday, January 4, 2023. A visitation will be held from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Monday, January 9th, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, where a funeral service will begin at 11 a.m. A private inurnment will be held in Cedar Memorial Park. Alvin Elmer Scotty Scott, Strawberry Point. Alvin Elmer Scotty Scott, 101, of Strawberry Point, died peacefully at his home on Thursday, January 5, 2023. Memorial services will be held in the spring of 2023 at the United Methodist Church in Strawberry Point with full military honors to follow at Cass Township Cemetery in Strawberry Point. Online condolences may be sent to Leonard Muller, FH.com. Marsha Ann Himes. Marsha Ann Himes, 76, of Mount Vernon, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, December 29, 2022. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 10, 2023, at the Lisbon United Methodist Church in Lisbon, by the Rev. Josh Swaim. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, January 9th, at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service, Mount Vernon. Burial, Mount Vernon Memorial Cemetery. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Marsha's tribute wall and share your support and memories with her family at stuartbaxter.com under obituaries. Kathleen Marie Pitlick. Kathleen Marie Pitlick, 62, of Oxford, died peacefully surrounded by her family on Tuesday, January 3, 2023. Massive Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Monday, January 9th at St. Peter Catholic Church in Cosgrove with burial to follow at St. Peter's Cemetery. Visitation will be from 2 to 7 p.m. Sunday, January 8th at the St. Peter Parish Walshmitt Hall. A rosary will be recited at 1.30 p.m. prior to the visitation. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Kathy Pitlick Memorial Fund, care of P.O. Box 167, Iowa City, Iowa 52244. Death Notices Cedar Rapids. Richard Donalds, 82, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Delbert Earl Hartford, Sr., 78, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Lansing, Connie K. Mateel, 78, Died Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Martin Grau Funeral Home, Walk On. Manchester. Elizabeth Betty Shaw, 90. 
Died Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. Leonard Muller Funeral Home, Manchester. Ollie. Ira Blair, 51, died Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Home Funeral Home, Sigourney. Robbins. Craig Cadlock, 68, died Thursday, January 5th, 2023. Brosh Chapel and the Abba Center, Cedar Rapids. Vinton. Cynthia L. Slate, 70, died Thursday, January 5th, 2023. Phillips Funeral Home, Vinton. Wadena. Dennis D. Bond, 75, died Thursday, January 5th, 2023. Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home, Arlington. Wakan, Carlton H. Christensen, 84, died Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Martin Grau Funeral Home, Wakan. And in other deaths, Pamela Ann Hammers, 61, of Cedar Falls, died Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. Dahl Van Hove, School, Schuf Funeral Home, Cedar Falls, and Randy R. Weimerskirsch, 42, of Clinton, Iowa, died Sunday, January 1st, 2023, Carson Celebration of Life Center, Maquoketa. Turning to the sports page, Iowa Wrestling is the number one story. It's titled Pin Number Nine by K.J. Pilcher, Dateline, Iowa City. Tony Cassiope has been sticking it to the competition. Iowa's heavyweight has always had a penchant for the pin, but he's kicked it up a notch this season. Cassiope has a season-high nine pins, including five in a row, entering the second-ranked Hawkeyes duel against Illinois tonight at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. He has recorded the most falls in a season by an Iowa wrestler since Alex Marinelli had nine in 2018 and 19. I feel good, wrestling good, Cassiope said. I've always been pretty good on top. I've been having success on top against guys getting falls. Cassiope has been dominant this season, posting a major and a seven-point decision in his two wins that went the distance. All of his pins have been in the first period. He opened the year with four straight pins. His current streak started December 10th at Tennessee Chattanooga and included pinning his way through the soldier salute. I'm going out there to wrestle how I wrestle, Cassiope said. Tom had me cut the guys a few times, got some takedowns, just working on my wrestling, but it's a tournament. I'm going out there to wrestle and beat the other guy. It doesn't matter the competition. Spencer Lee said Cassiope resembles a lightweight wrestler in a heavyweight body. He was impressed with Cassiope's takedown and releasing his finals opponent a few times before ending it early. Lee expects more dominance. He's pinned so many guys, I'm having a hard time counting, Lee said. I think it's the most pins by a guy on my team since I've been in college. Every year we have the team's most falls award. I think the most I've seen is eight or nine. He's going to blow that out of the water. We have a lot more matches to go. Conditioning could be an issue when wrestlers don't experience full seven-minute matches. The work he does in practice is more than enough to make up for short bouts. I'm not worried about that, Cassiope said. I'm wrestling in the room every single day, wrestling hard and wrestling long. Just because I have a few matches that are short doesn't take away from my endurance or make me worry about my endurance. I have a coach, Tom Brands, doesn't dwell on the past results, but credits Cassiope for the accomplishments. 
the focus has to be on what is next, which is Cassiope's exact mentality. When you look at those stats you mentioned, that's all great, but really it's about what is in front of him, Brand said. All that helps. It builds momentum. It shows you have the ability to terminate a match, but we still get better every day. He marches to the right beat as far as getting better every day. That's what it's about. Composure and controlled aggression are two improvements for Cassiope, who earned a United World Wrestling U23 World Championship bronze medal before the season. He's calmer, Brown said. I think there's an understanding that his calm urgency is something that is going to have to win the day for him. Cassiope is ranked third nationally by multiple outlets and part of a Big Ten conference quartet in the top four spots. The conference has six heavyweights in the top 15 of the national rankings with former Dubuque Wallard state champion and Rutgers heavyweight Boone McDermott coming in at 22nd to 24th. Ten Big Ten heavyweights are projected to be NCAA tournament qualifiers. Cassiope isn't concerned with the lists. I know the guys I'm going to have to beat, and that's what really matters, Cassiope said. It doesn't matter who's ranked where. I know I'm going to have to beat Penn State. I know I'm going to have to beat Michigan. I know I'm going to have to beat Arizona State, Northwestern, everybody and anybody. Iowa, 7-0, and opens the conference dual season against Illinois, 2-2, two and two, and then travels to West Lafayette, Indiana, to wrestle Purdue on Sunday. In junior hockey, the headline is Fitzgerald Cousins Reunited on the Ice by Jeff Johnson. Teammates, again, first cousins, though way more like brothers. Not roommates, just didn't work out that way for Riley and Brendan Fitzgerald. Oh, well, can't have everything. I don't know, Brendan said with a smile. If I'd have lived with him, that might have been living dangerously. The two have separate billet homes this winter as members of the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. Not a big deal, since they are together, which means everything to them. The Fitzgeralds grew up in the Boston suburbs, part of a family that's tight in every bit about hockey. Brendan's father, Tom, played more than 1,000 games in the National Hockey League and is general manager of the New Jersey Devils. Riley's dad, Scott, is director of player personnel for the San Jose Sharks. NHL players Kevin Hayes, Matthew and Brady Taychuk are cousins, as is Keith Kaychuk, the father of Matthew and Brady, who played more than 1,200 NHL games and is a member of the United States Hockey Hall of Fame. Brendan's brother, Casey, is a defenseman for the Buffalo Sabres, and another brother, Ryan, was a Boston Bruins draft pick who plays for Lehigh Valley of the American Hockey League, the sport's top minor league. I don't even know what to say, how to put it into words, Riley Fitzgerald said. It's just kind of like a lifestyle. We all play hockey, and the ones who don't play anymore still work in it. It just brings so much joy to our family. Being from a hockey family, we've just loved hockey at every point in our lives, Brendan said. The boys are the same age, 19, and spent so much time together as kids, living only about 15 minutes apart. They'd always seemed to be each other's homes. In fact, Riley said he had his own bedroom at Brendan's house, where he'd stay on weekends. He had older brothers, so when one moved off to college or something, another one would move into his room, Riley said. Then I moved into his. 
cousins played hockey together every step of the way, too, until veering apart as teenagers. Brendan went to prep school, the Governor's Academy in Massachusetts, and then joined the Rough Riders last season after the club traded for his United States Hockey League rights. Riley spent last year at the Boston Hockey Academy, an academic training program for aspiring players. A defenseman, Brendan returned to Cedar Rapids this season. He'll eventually head off to the University of New Hampshire. A winger, Riley got an invitation to try out over the summer. He impressed enough to stick around. It was one of those things where you've got to make the team, Riley said, so I was kind of always on alert that anything could happen. But Brendan helped me a lot with advice and stuff. We both knew that we worked very hard this summer, along with all the other guys, and we're both confident that we were going to play together. It's been awesome, Brendan said. We grew up together. I played with him for probably 12 years in youth hockey. We parted ways in high school, and we never really know if that would be the last time playing together. Turns out it wasn't. Brendan has two goals and 15 assists in 20 games, a noticeably improved player in his second USHL season. He's out of action for a couple of weeks with an ankle injury. Riley has two goals and three assists in 22 games as he continues the adjustment to a new and higher level. The Rough Riders have a home-and-home series with Madison this weekend, playing Saturday night at I'm on Ice. They have won three in a row and four of five. Just being out here from day one has been awesome, Riley said. Seeing him at the rink every day again, we were both super pumped. He kind of drifted away from me, and you could say, in the hockey world, Brendan said, and then this happened. It's just like old times, and it's awesome. Turning to the sideline column, college football, ISU hires Clanton away from UNI. Dateline Ames. Ryan Clanton, who served as offensive coordinator and offensive line coach at UNI the past five seasons, is Iowa State's new offensive line coach, Cyclones coach Matt Campbell announced Thursday. Clanton had a pair of offensive linemen picked in the first three rounds of the NFL draft during his tenure at UNI. Offensive tackle Trevor Penning was a 2022 first-round pick by the New Orleans Saints. Right offensive tackle Spencer Brown was a third-round pick by the Buffalo Bills in the 2021 draft. We are excited to add Ryan to our coaching staff, Campbell said in a news release. He had great success as a player, competing at a high level, and as someone that has had a significant impact on the players he's coached. He's helped send multiple players to the NFL, and I believe he'll have a tremendous impact on our program as well. Clanton was elevated to offensive coordinator at UNI before the 2022 season. In his first season running the offense, UNI averaged 33 points per game and 444.9 yards per game, increasing both totals from the previous season. Iowa's DeGene named to AP All-Bowl team. Iowa sophomore Cooper DeGene was named to the Associated Press All-Bowl team Thursday for his performance in the Hawkeyes' win over Kentucky in the Music City Bowl. A member of the All-Bowl secondary, DeGene scored on a 14-yard interception return, delivered seven tackles, and also had three punt returns for 42 yards, including a 34-yarder for Iowa. In men's basketball, UNI's Jacobson moves up MBC list. 
Valparaiso, Indiana, Dateline. UNI's men's basketball coach, Ben Jacobson, earned his 328th career victory Tuesday when Michael Duax's buzzer-beating putback gave the Panthers a 69-67 Missouri Valley Conference win over Valparaiso. Jacobson passed former Creighton coach Dana Altman for third on the NBC's all-time wins list. And a little bit more, Iowa hosted 15th-ranked Indiana last night in Big Ten men's basketball. Check out my class's report. See KJ, uh, KJ Pilcher's story from last night's City High at Linmar Wrestling Duel, and also the Prep Basketball Podcast is back in 2023 with a loaded first show. Listen to what Jeff Johnson and Jeff Linder have to talk about. And in women's basketball, Suarez snares 20 rebounds for the Cyclones by Rob Gray. Iowa State's Stephanie Suarez is no stranger to 20 rebound games. She did it frequently for the Masters University at the NAIA level, but in the Big 12, that's different. You kind of have to do everything, said the six foot six Suarez, who grabbed 20 boards in 25 minutes in the number 11 Cyclones cruised past West Virginia 70-50 to on Wednesday at Hilton Coliseum. It's nicer now. Much harder, too. Suarez became the first ISU player to corral 20 rebounds since all-time leading scorer Ashley Jones accomplished the feat March 3, 2020 at Kansas. Suarez, a Brazil native who scored 30, 13 points and blocked three shots. I wish you guys could see her at practice and how hard she works, said Cyclones head coach Bill Fennelly, whose team improved to 10-2 and overall and 2-0 and in Big 12 play. What I told her was, you're like a freshman that came to college and we're teaching you at a graduate level class. No offense to the NAIA, but it is completely different than what she's doing. She wants to be the person that everyone thinks she can be. That's a standout player for an ISU team hoping to make another deep NCAA tournament run. And Suarez has lived up to those lofty aims and the conference seasons just getting started. Steph does an amazing job on the boards, especially on the offensive end, and then also on the defensive end, said Jones, who notched her 55th career double-double with 19 points and 11 rebounds. It allows us to get second-chance shots, and it stops them from getting... It stops them from getting second-chance shots. Suarez's impact should continue to grow. Certainly, Suarez is a factor in the lane, West Virginia Virginia coach Don Plitzwhite said. Makes life really difficult. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, January 6, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website at iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thank you for listening. <laughs>